Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior tomorrow knots. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasted. And this is our third episode in a 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Before we dive into today's segment of the movie, some business. I wanted to give a little follow-up on our theme tracker. Hasten, we've been reached out to by a musician. Our call for help last episode was heard, and so we are currently in contact with someone who would love to help us isolate some of those motifs and melodies that we were getting confused quite pertinent to this episode because by my original assumption this entire sequence we're covering today casey's pinvitation uh is mostly to my ears a riff on the main tomorrowland theme and there was some question last time about whether or not there was a little bit of Athena's theme that I was confusing for a section of the Tomorrowland theme. And so at some point in the future, we're going to bring them on and uh, they're going to set the record straight for us. And we're going to dig in and uh, figure out which is which, what is what. So what we know for sure is that the Tomorrowland theme definitely goes like this. So that is definitely the Tomorrowland theme. But the question is, there's this bit right before then that I can't tell if it's a second movement of the Tomorrowland theme or a built-out variation on Athena's theme. And that bit goes like this. Which is the portion that I'm wondering if it has a melodic relationship to Athena's theme, which goes, of course, like this. So we're going to get to the bottom of that in a future episode. But for now, we're talking about Casey's Pinvitation Vision of Tomorrowland. And for those following along, the runtime on this one is 30 minutes and 54 seconds to 36 minutes and 15 seconds. So we're covering a much uh, shorter portion of the movie today, but it's such a pivotal one that we thought that it deserved its own moment in the sun to focus only on this one sequence, which appears to be one uninterrupted shot. A one as they say. But of course, it's multiple shots that were shot at different places, which brings us to our ongoing segment. We're pulling right into the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. All the pieces of this sequence were filmed, of course, at the City of Arts and Sciences in Valencia, Spain. But the first place that Casey appears here with the Jetpack Boys, this is the Queen Sophia Palace of the Arts. It's an opera house, but in the fiction, they've renamed it to be the Founders Plaza. We know that because we can see in the background a quote from Einstein that says, Imagination is more important than knowledge. 
Now, originally on set, Hasten, do you remember when those set photos first leaked from Valencia? That had a much longer extension of the quote that they must have digitally removed, thinking no one's going to read this paragraph of text. Yeah, there was a second line below it. And I mean, it's only on frame for like less than two seconds. So I'm not surprised that they pulled the second line. The full version of that quote is imagination is more important than knowledge for knowledge is limited. Whereas imagination embraces the entire world, stimulating progress, giving birth to evolution. So clearly at some point, Brad Bird and the production designer, Scott Chambliss thought this idea is important enough for us to emblazon on the wall and then ended up regretting it later and saying this is only on screen for a fraction of a second we've got to remove that second part because we might as well go with the short version then confusing the hell out of people and making it seem like we're making this movie for people like us who are going to go back and freeze frame it as we are now So we have Casey, she's got her pin, she's getting ready to touch it, to have her fantastic experience. I sort of love the hidden Disney duality connection here of building a Tomorrowland in the middle of a swamp, which is exactly what Walt Disney World kind of was, right? That was right, that right. was what Epcot was supposed to be, this like amazing futuristic city out in the middle of a swamp. And so we get this unintentional sort of parallel here with her heading out to the swamp to see that city. Absolutely. From the swamp grows a Tomorrowland. It just echoes throughout history. I do want to call out this transition. As we talked about last time, the fantastic effects that ILM is doing when she touches the pin. This one is my favorite because if you do freeze frame on the Tomorrowland side of this transition, it's almost as if the city is loading in and you can see darkness fading out in the distance, which plays into exactly what this is, some kind of presumably virtual preview of a city. It's neat. It's a very short transition that allows for a lot of world building and storytelling. And it's also the longest of the pin transitions, presumably because they know this is going to be the final one and the timer on that pin is about to run out. So they, they hammed it up just a little bit, still only a fraction of a second, but uh, a lot more evocative, obviously, because they had the ability with the digital model of the city to play a little bit more with light and shadow than they were in the other transitions. So Casey's costume in this scene is immediately quite different from what we see her in in her introduction. We see her in, you know, the black clad wild one motorcycle youth. And now we see her in a striped uh, sweater. And her shoes, by the way, are like $300 designer shoes called Golden Goose Swoop Shoes. And I just don't see Casey personally prioritizing shoes that are that expensive. So I'm going to go ahead and call out the costume designers on this one. I don't know if you're friends with the Golden Goose people. Interestingly enough, these are sneakers that are sewn out of like vintage fabrics. So if you want to find the same color that Casey wears in this scene, good luck. Not going to happen. They bought them all up for the movie. This is sort of a transitional costume between how we meet her and where she ends up in sort of her layered, a little bit too hot for Florida look that she'll wear throughout the rest of the movie. I do love also that even though Casey has gone out of her way 
to get out into the middle of nowhere and not bump her head on anything in the physical world, the first thing that happens, presumably completely by design in this virtual experience, is these jetpacks almost knock her in the head and she flips over. So there's really nowhere you can go that you're not going to have a physical embodied experience in this little preview. Then move, Dexter. Totally swift. Speaking about those jetpack boys for a second, uh, in their seemingly very uncomfortable balloon suits, I do love that we get a glimpse of the Tomorrowland youth culture. Because when he gets knocked over and his friends help him up, the friend says, Zen move, Dexter. So the way that you insult someone is to say that was a Zen move. And, you know, when it's clearly a very clumsy move, we only get little tastes of that culture. So we got to take it where we can get it. And of course, having the jetpack boys be the first thing that she sees uh, gives her a nice little tie into Frank. And, you know, if this was presumably a vision of Tomorrowland from 1984, I also like to think that the jetpacks being so ubiquitous speak to Frank's impact on the city that he has at this point yet to be kicked out of. I also love these circles of agriculture, the idea of nature and technology. There's a lot of storytelling inside of this sequence that I think that in the relative short amount of time that you're inside of it, you really don't get to tease everything out because it goes so fast. And yet when you go back and watch this, you really get this ability to like, see like, Oh, this is a well crafted design across the whole sequence of this imaginary space. There's actually a lot of world building in here. You know, some great things about like, Oh, the, you know, the hover rail that's designed for public transit just becomes Nix's personal shuttlecraft, the end of the film. And personally, I love that this sequence gives us that sort of glimpse, that sort of long form ad of what it was supposed to be. Did it ever reach this point? Maybe, maybe not. Well, that's the fundamental question of this sequence, because, you know, with later revelations, when Casey finally meets Frank, he calls it a commercial. And he says it was an invitation for a party that never happened. And so that's kind of an interpretable statement. I think that the audience is absolutely open to interpreting this scene of Casey's vision one of two ways, which is either, yes, this was a commercial. We can't argue that. But was it designed to bring people into something that actually existed in this form? Or is this more of a concept art for a city that was in progress and maybe had more drama behind the scenes than we're seeing here in this sort of utopian vision? Basically, the question, it's a sci-fi question, is, is this a completely virtual reality rendering of a place that never existed? Or were they using some kind of hyper-advanced light field camera to actually capture the quasi-video of something that actually existed. Basically, was this a staged commercial that was shot or filmed, you know, in air quotes, in a real Tomorrowland, or was it a pure digital invention? And I think that there are things that point to, you can interpret it both ways. You know, for me, one of the big linchpins for what is happening is the moment when you start to realize no one can see Casey. Right. And I think that even in our modern, you know, relatively primitive version of real life VR, we're edging towards this reality where non-player characters can acknowledge the player and can bring them into the story in that way. And so, you know, in a more optimistic interpretation, I would say the fact that people can't see Casey and the fact that there's not this one-to-one sync 
of her actions affecting the environment or the people in it, I would say that that's evidence of this being more of a captured moment. And that would speak to it being a real place that actually was like this, even if they kind of polished it up for the sake of, you know, hey, we're shooting a commercial just like you do in reality. You make the food out of something different than what the food actually is to make it look better. So it could be this idealized version. But I would say that speaks to it uh, really being there. And certainly, once they get there at the end of the movie in the third act, you can't deny that they directly land on the portion of Tomorrowland that Casey visits here. So even if it is on the pessimistic scale of the interpretation, totally not a real version that ever did exist. Like this is not what 1984 Tomorrowland looked like. We know that it was at least followed to the degree that there was a spaceport there. It's not in use anymore. And I think it's more dramatically interesting if this is a closer vision to reality than that abstraction, because if they show up later in the movie and there's no rocket ships, the spaceport is lying empty. It's not as meaningful if it never actually functioned. So the idea that there was some functionality at this point and Nix was just able to pull the plug right at the end and then kind of impose his will over the ensuing 20 years, I I think that's a more compelling idea. And that's where I kind of fall on that. No, I mean, I 100% agree. I think that the the interesting challenge behind sort of sort of this 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 false start concept of Tomorrowland, right? The 64 World's Fair was this false start concept. Oh, we're getting ready to open it up in 20 years. Then things start to fall. Mix decides, hey, society doesn't want this because it's just going to turn the world into this. You get this, you get this unique perspective of, okay, well that never happened. So it's like how much of Tomorrowland happened? How much did that development happen? I mean, we see that the monitor got built. We see that the spaceport got built. But even in those final scenes, we see a very different we see a very different Tomorrowland at that point in time. Speaking of the monitor, that's one of the aspects that, you know, the screenplay for the sequence is very much in line with what we see in the movie. But one of the more interesting transitions, and I'm not sure at what point in production or post-production this was decided, originally that trilosphere monitor building, originally called the Oracle, was in the middle of this section was in the middle of the city and narratively they shifted it to be on the outskirts of the city, almost as a kind of safety precaution for the awesome power being harnessed by it. Right. And it, and it's in, you know, I'm looking watching in the scene right now, it's in several shots, right? When she's running down the stairs in the deep, towards in the, the deep background, in the deep background. And then when she, you know, is on the, on the transport, you see it come up in on the, on the right side. And then it's interesting because when she goes on a road trip, you know, she draws this emphasized monitor as part of the process that she goes on with. That's an interesting point. The The illustration that Casey does just from her quick memory uh, of having been here does feature the monitor. And I think that that's probably a holdover of when the monitor trilosphere building with the sphere was more central to the city, something that she would have had a more featured vision of. And you've got to imagine that they filmed that insert of her drawing that picture prior to that transition. Putting it on the outskirts, I think, makes it more narratively ominous. And it gives it this kind of outskirts, like this is there's a dangerous thing going on here and we can't build everything on its foundations. And it makes it even more ironic that Nix ends up funneling all of the resources of Tomorrowland into this one thing that originally was off to the side. So I do like that it was repositioned, um, but you're right, there are some little leftover remnants of when it was a more prominent pillar in Tomorrowland, which quite frankly uh, is what it looks like in the opening castle 
of the movie that they've redone to look vaguely Tomorrowland. Obviously, they've repositioned all the buildings to be more uh, iconic, but they do put the monitor right in the middle there. And uh, I think this would have been an interesting thing to see right here, but it certainly would have pulled focus and felt more expositional than experiential. You've, you've pointed out the main design challenge here, which is in a very short amount of time, every aspect of this sequence from the costumes to the set design to how the layout of the city works, we're only seeing little glimpses of Tomorrowland and they're each 20 years apart. So there are three distinct eras of Tomorrowland that we see in this movie. We see it under construction in 64. We really only get a, a vague sense of it. And then we see it here in its theoretical full glory 20 years later in 84. And then obviously in 2014, 2015, whenever the main action of the movie is meant to take place, it's completely desolate and uh, solely focused on that monitor. This is the centerpiece of the Tomorrowland design. And so it has to contrast both what we saw being under construction and what it will become under Nix's rule. So there's a lot of design and narrative information packed into only what, just about five minutes of the movie. What's interesting about this is that, you know, and not to be a, you know, negative Nancy on this, but you have this sort of idea of, oh, this five minute sequence is what people wanted the whole film to be. And I, and I think when you look at, when you look at the overall story of what the film's trying to tell you, it, you know, it specifically holds that back from you. It also puts it in the context of you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to get there. You kind of have to earn it, right? This wasn't, this was a commercial and she earns it. She gets to go, but she just gets to see, what happened to it? Yeah, you and I just happen to be in the enviable position that we actually relate to the story that they were telling. But we can't deny, even as fans of the movie, that the advertising absolutely laid pretty heavily into this five minutes of the movie. And it made people want something that the movie was never going to give them. So I can't ding anybody for holding that. But I also sometimes wonder, you know, if that was the movie, if this five minutes was the movie, what is the story? You know, I've never heard any really compelling answer to that question of what would the movie be about if it wasn't about what it was about. And I'm just much more in the camp of I'd rather take the movie that's given to me and try and find meaning in it, which we've been able to do. And so like, let's be honest, this five minute speech scene at the time in our lives, we spent two years waiting for this five minute scene. For us, it was, oh, this is this is this is her Main Street Cinema. This is her glimpse of the future. And obviously we connected to it very strongly because we got to live it in a way. And her story is kind of the audience story at the end of the day, right? Like, oh, I wanted to go. I, I got to see this. I got to see this glimpse of this beautiful. She got a trailer of what Tomorrowland should have been. And then she never got it. Looking back on it now and what the film is and not what the marketing was trying to do to get you into theaters, it's a lot more interesting of a concept and an idea than, you know, I remember it was Lindelof was like, oh, well, Tomorrowland is like uh, Hogwarts for science was the quote that they kept pulling out of this interview. That And that was from a very early version of the story prior to any screenplay being written in just the blue sky phase, they had many different versions of what this movie would be. And I think that that was a guiding light for a very short period of time, but it was such a kind of buzzworthy phrase that it kept being strung along 
into the promotion for the movie. And certainly that describes the idea of the place. But unfortunately, saying that this is a Hogwarts for science implies that this film is somehow the Harry Potter of science. And the the narrative of this couldn't be more dissimilar from a traditional adventure story like that. It's much closer to Close Encounters, which I think at one point, Brad Bird really did try and get that idea out there that, look, this is a road movie. This is about the road to Tomorrowland. And at the end of the day, either you're on board or not on board with the idea that this movie is trying to challenge the audience to say, look, we're not even going to give you the future utopia in this movie. Like, this is not going to be escapism. This movie is a challenge. This movie is a call to arms. And some people are going to dig that and some people aren't. And I think, you know, the most interesting movies are going to be challenging like that. They are going to be divisive like that. And they are going to split the audience right down the middle. And, you know, to this day, if you buy into Rotten Tomato scores, this one's at a 50%. And I'd say, isn't that the ideal Rotten Tomato score? I think it is. <laughs> so one of the first big transitions, you know, the first sequence where Casey sees the Jetpack Boys and she walks down the stairs, this is our first big transition from the locations. So that original location is the opera house. And then she walks down the stairs and for a brief second, you can see at the end of the stairs, kind of a little pool of water. And then Casey gets distracted again. She keeps looking up at the sky, which, you know, I think is a great framing device for this. She keeps looking up. She keeps seeing things above her and there's nothing more aspirational than looking up at the sky. And she sees all of these spaceships, taxis, monorails, everything else. And when she looks back down, the first big transition, she's now walking along a pathway at a completely different area of the city of arts and sciences. And she's presumably meant to be at the bottom of the stairs, but geographically the camera didn't pan left or right when it was looking up at the spaceship. So it comes down and there's a little bit of a cheat that's detectable there, but only if you're really trying to get a mental sense of the space. And I think the added value of having real buildings with real light shining on them is worth more than having some perfect theoretical layout of a fictional city. So when she runs down this staircase and they do this transition um, and you have her next to the Prince Philippe Museum of Science building at the actual uh, City of Arts and Sciences, I just think you have this great just mid-century design. You've got these you know, you've got these very Tomorrowland theme park-esque, you know, building building jets that are shooting off from the side, the support columns. You've got lots of seating. You've got, even if she runs close to the building, you've got these great, you know, just mid-century, you know, swoops and architecture and all of this glass. It's such a great natural building to just blend right into that sort of fake digital Tomorrowland. And it gives you this sense of, Oh, we're in the future, but this these sort of this thing is still very rooted in its sixties, you know, sort of origin from the fair. And I, I just love everything about that. Yeah, and appropriately enough, this is also the shot where they've composited Space Mountain into the far distance. So, you know, the 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 design aesthetic is consistent, like you said, and that was the perfect place to kind of frame it if you wanted to have uh, an Easter egg like that. And story-wise, I think it speaks to the idea that Tomorrowland was this city that kept growing with the influence of different minds, right? So if this, the idea of Plus Ultra is all these great minds coming together, you do have a lot of 
different architectural styles in the different buildings and in the different sections. And I think that was something that was very intentionally done by Scott Chambliss because, you know, the script can only go so far in describing the feeling of the place, but the actual choices for the aesthetic of each section and how the buildings will contrast against each other and work in harmony with each other, that was largely left to Scott Chambliss. I think he did such a great job putting those things together and making it feel like, yeah, this is something that grew organically. This is something that was built up over time. You know, Frank saw it under construction as a kid, and now Casey is here in its heyday. And if Nix hadn't stopped it, just imagine how much more vibrant it would be. Imagine how many more cities there would be. This mightn't be the only city on this alternate Earth dimension. So also in this shot, right behind Space Mountain, you know, Space Mountain's really pulling focus here, but that's the monitor right behind it. And, you know, we really do see the monitor in the far, far distance when Casey's on the monorail going to the spaceport. And, you know, safety-wise, it makes sense that the spaceport would be a little bit out of the city, just as you would in real life, put a, put a launch pad further out from civilization. Uh, the monitor was even further planting this idea that the monitor is even more dangerous than the kind of combustion that's fueling space travel. You know, the thing that's planet bound way over there, the the kind of haunted house on the hill uh, is potentially even more catastrophic of an idea and a technology than this stuff is. This is also a good moment for our recurring segment, the Museum Minute. History, art, salvaging it. We'd rather it was lost forever. Not to go into too much specific detail, but most of the original assets that we have in the Tomorrowland Times collection come from this segment. The background actors with their costumes, the majority of which were custom made, uh, those were things that Disney did not see fit to keep in the archives. And so they were liquidated and we were able to acquire quite a few of those. And so we've got little pieces here and there from a lot of the featured background extras walking around. My favorite of which is when Casey goes through the Tesla station, which is great because, you know, you get the you get the little taste of Nikola Tesla being part of this backstory before we get to Paris. And it's really cemented there. But we go through this levitating station hallway, which is our nice transition away from that part of the City of Arts and Sciences. And Casey goes onto this platform. Now, the platform for the monorail, which is called the hover rail, we keep calling it the monorail because clearly that's the inspiration, even though, Hasten, I think it should have been called the non-rail or the no-no rail. That's how it would be spelled anyway, the no-no rail. Because there's no no rail. rail. There's no rail. It's just hovering. But hover rail, more literal, fine. Not as funny, not as punny. I get it. Brad Bird doesn't want to weigh down his movie with too many puns, but I'm going to call it the non-rail. And so on that platform... I'm fairly certain that that was a set. And so that hallway of the Tesla platform uh, represents a transition from a physical location in the city of arts and sciences to a set where the actual monorail segments that they built for the interior were. And so I believe that platform outside with the transparent floor is a set. Um, we've seen pictures of blue screen. It's it's conceivable that they did build that set while they were in Spain. I'm actually not quite sure where it was, but um, you know, it's stitched together pretty seamlessly as we pan up to the hero shot on the Tesla station sign and then down into the hallway as people are, you know, whipping past Casey. And the absolute favorite item of the background costumes that we have from this scene, right when she goes out onto the platform, there's a gentleman who's on a kind of hoverboard 
that he then steps off of and the hoverboard folds up into a briefcase. So it's a guy who's riding his own briefcase to the monorail. And we have that man's beautiful blue linen suit jacket. And it's the centerpiece of our Pinvitation collection. And we look forward to displaying it somewhere quite prominently. So right above the Tesla station sign, it says LEV. So the hover rail, as it is called audibly, is actually the LEV, the levitating elevated vehicle. So even in the most technobabble version of this, they're not going to call it a monorail, a nonorail, or anything else. So don't you dare call it a nonorail, but I will. But I want to talk about this logo design for a minute because it's great. Because the E represents the actual hover rail itself. Mm. which is just fantastic. You're saying the E in the middle because it has that swoop on the bottom? Because No, because it's round exactly like the hover rail. Oh, 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 I see what you're saying. Because the front window of the monorail is actually kind of that half round. That's what you're right. talking about. I see, I see now. And we see that logo in multiple places. It's on the train. It's on the board that's inside of the, that's inside of the train. We need to inquire with Clint Schultz if that's a Clint Schultz joint. My gut tells me that it's not. But it might be, and in which case we'll have him on to talk about the LEV, Levitating Elevated Vehicle. Not the most inspired name, so I'm going to stick with Nonorail, and that's all I have to say about that. We also have a lady walking by with a hovering baby pram. So clearly, the most cost-efficient and widespread technology in this version of Tomorrowland is making things hover. You can make just about anything hover here, and that's the future. So Casey's just about ready to go into the the LEV tunnel, the tunnel to the train station, and she passes by these little these little portable cars, these little teeny tiny like two seater cars. Um, now these are actually these these Chevy concept vehicles. They actually originally came out in 2010. Uh, the refreshed versions that we're seeing came out in 2011 at the auto show. It's very interesting because they had these at the premiere. Uh, if you go to Epcot and you ride test track, there's an exploded one in the queue, exactly like the same ones that are inside the film uh, from around that same time, 2012. And uh, it's fascinating because I really thought these little concept vehicles were far along. I mean, here in the film, they're turning, they're moving, they're driving. There's another scene later with um, Frank and Athena using them as well. So in the lore of Tomorrowland, these little, personal vehicles have been around for a long time, right? My favorite part is, is, is that we're, we're at the premiere of Tomorrowland. We're getting all of our pictures. We're doing our red carpet interviews. Thanks to um, mouse info. And they're packing up the whatever. And then they have these little portable cars and I fully expect them. I'm like, they're electric vehicles. I drive an electric vehicle. Like they're only a couple of years old. Like they should just pull them straight out. And what do they do? They pull out these giant lead acid 12 volt batteries <laughs> and they put them on the ground and they have to connect them up to it. And then he's holding the battery as they like move the vehicle around. Quite appropriate to the sequence because we're seeing tomorrow, but it's not quite working the way that we think it should. 
not even the the concept vehicles, which I believe were called the ENVs or the NVs. Yes. And indeed, Casey envies everything she's seeing around her. I'm going to say that the UI on the column that that man is punching into to reach his destination is confusing as hell. I would not know how to punch in. And and what is he doing? Also, like, is he is he navigating the whole train? That doesn't make sense. No, no, no. Maybe that's how you tell it where you want to get off. Maybe it's telling you what stop you want. So if no one punches in the pools, they're not going to stop at the pools. What's interesting to me is, is that if going back to your commercial analogy, we very clearly see him punch in the spaceport as a destination. Mm. Like very Mm, clearly, like this is designed to have that particular see you at the spaceport. We're saving the seat for you. Right. That was always where this was going to end. You know, we were always going to get to the spaceport because that is the particular focus that would be drawing Casey into her interests. I wonder if the pin is intelligent enough from a programmatic perspective to intuit the interests of the user. And so if someone other than Casey touched it, I do wonder if there is a branching narrative to this commercial, meaning if I was not as interested in that, but the pool, you know, if I was an Olympic swimmer who touched this and I wanted to go to the pools, would the final scene be at the pools and it would be another swimmer saying, we're saving a pair of trunks just for you. I've always been curious, once Casey steps onto the Nona rail, uh, I've always wondered, ever since we first saw the movie, what the audience... There's a bit of a mystery here. And I've always wondered what the audience was meant to know and when they were meant to know it. And when you look at the screenplay, it describes it almost exactly how you see it here, which is just that this mother of the two children who says, are you coming? We don't have all day. This is when the question arises, is this a dynamic... Uh, real-time rendered video game simulator type situation? Or is this a pre-recorded thing? And I do think in the script, it does indicate that the intention was for there to be a question of that without necessarily giving an answer. And that's exactly what we're supposed to be wondering at that moment, because there is something a little bit off. It literally describes that her eyeline is not quite right with Casey. And that to me really just makes the case of this being an actual recording of a real place, which to me, if it wasn't, they would have likely played more into the aesthetic of, no, no, everyone's responding directly to you, but there's these glitches in the matrix, as it were, you know, where certain things aren't loading in properly or there's pixelization. Like if they were trying to play with the virtual simulation, I think there's a lot of other visual aberrations that they would have rested on other than just a kind of uncanny, Eye line being slightly off. It's a much more subtle unrest. Are you coming? You can see me? We don't have all day. Okay, so when she's on the train, there's a lot of actually, in a very short amount of time, there's a lot of great gags here. Uh, when When she's at the front of the train, I love this digital newspaper. I love that it's called uh, Today Daily. (laughs) <laughs> which is great and i right. love this it couldn't, it couldn't possibly be called tomorrowland times right exactly <laughs> and i love that uh i love that uh there's this special report on the side with the rocket and then you've got you got the woman doing her makeup with her you know crazy top thing and you have the kids that are just fascinated by this you know 
this tube that they're in as they move from one location, one location to another. I also um, love that one of these kids is wearing a clothing item that has like uh, hot air balloons on the pattern. So it's almost this idea that the founders really did have their own districts uh, that stylistically influenced, you know, what would grow out of those particular areas of Tomorrowland. Absolutely. And you see a lot of the 80s aesthetic in here as well, right? You see a lot of like green pants and you see a lot of like a lot of big collars and a lot more suit jackets. Like there's a real subtle 80s sort of fashion, like somehow the 80s fashion of the real world has bled over into Tomorrowland. Oh, yeah. No, you've got collars that are so big that they become scarves. I know this from direct experience from actually holding the shirts. The the actual collars on the shirts uh, were extended simply to be wrapped around the neck. So this is some high fashion stuff going on here. There's also a man wearing a headset. Yes. Of the, of the interesting passengers that Casey walks past, there's a man just in a lighted headset completely zoned out. So it goes to show you, you can make your city as brilliant and as wonderful as the city of the future, the city on the hill, and there's still going to be people zoning out with their AR slash VR headsets. You can't stop it, folks. Especially on public transportation. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just going to say the one big difference between subways that i've been on and this one is i'm gonna assume they have the antimicrobial uh surface material so that this nona rail will never smell like urine and a glass and a glass floor which normally is reserved for exciting transportation like boats but here there's just too much wonderful weaving pathways and gardens to see beneath you. Why wouldn't you? That's another moment when Casey does look down the little ship that's sort of flying alongside the Nona rail and then goes underneath. It to me looks like a 20 years later version of the little ship that Athena and Nyx fly off of in the opening sequence. You can see the evolution of the design style there. Things are getting sleeker. Things are getting more minimal uh, down to the bare essentials. Uh, not as many external propulsion. Very, devices. very Epcot Horizons vehicle by this point in time. Smooth. And-, and can we talk about these diving pools for a second? Because it makes for such a dynamic visual. You've never seen anything like it. I do wonder, though, as a swimmer, at what point in the depth of the pool, you know, it has surfaces on the top and the bottom. At what point in that pool does the gravity invert? Meaning how far do I have to go before I pop out the other side? Am I ever safe? Am I ever truly relaxing in one of these pools? I really like the detail in the back of this. You can see the little tubes that they have to either swim up or jettied up or whatever. They get them to the top in order to fall down the bottom. And then you've got that, those great, you know, sweeping 60s style, you know, holders around it. It's just, it's such, it's such great evocative design. Absolutely. And in this version of the sequence in the movie, you go straight from those pools into a tunnel, popping right out into the spaceport. But in the screenplay, there was another stop that they actually stop at. Because, you know, we don't stop at the pools. We go right down to the spaceport, and that's our next stop. But there was originally a stop at the bridgeway, which, of course, we see later with Nix when they finally reach Tomorrowland. There is a stop there, and there is a kind of introduction to the concept of that where you can see out into a very not Tomorrowland Earth location. So they show the bridgeway out to Australia, and there's kind of an announcer saying that the uh, bridgeway to Iceland will be accessible in 13 minutes. So, you know, whereas Nix later is using the bridgeway for his own kind of hoarder purposes, 
this was something that was just another mode of transportation available to people in Tomorrowland. If you wanted to go back into various parts of the world, you could do so through the bridgeway. It was an open, accessible gateway back to the real world. And then this was going to be the moment where Casey notices the massive sphere of the Trilosphere building for the monitor. And uh, it makes sense that when they made that decision to move it further outside Tomorrowland, they could simply snip out this little stop and just allow it to be introduced when they will interact with it later in the movie. And of course, the hero featured extras in this sequence that Casey observes, uh, now knowing that presumably no one can see her, is this family of the astronaut who's quite worried about her, you know, make sure you call us when you can and let us know you're okay. And she, of course, consoles them by saying, look, we're only going 20 light years out. So this speaks to the sense of scale that should this be an accurate reflection of what was going on at the time, uh, the scale of Plus Ultra's expansion and research, which we'll see a little bit more of as we pull into the stop and Casey actually uh, exits. You can definitely see that this is another transition back to a real location because this one is filmed on the upper level of the museum that she was walking along earlier, uh, which is also the location that Frank Casey and Athena will end up prominently visiting when they crash land uh, later in the movie. But you can see a passenger on the monorail walk by the front of the frame uh, from left to right, masking the transition from the monorail interior set to the actual on-site, on-location City of Arts and Sciences. And we're just seeing a ton of people uh, weaving in and out. And just as we learned a lot from the culture of the people on the monorail, there's a lot to be learned about what Tomorrowland's up to here as well. The first one that really sticks out to me is this rolling cart of kind of scientific samples that presumably have been pulled back from space travel. So yes, we've got some samples here. What am I seeing? Some kind of fungus, some kind of sea anemone, some kind of multi-global blue globs just a lot of samples i mean these could easily be from the deep sea as much as from deep space and then right as those samples and the scientists move by that's when we really see how far away the monitor is in the background you know our eyes are being pulled by a lot of these launch ramps for the spaceships but you can see it's quite small in distance and sort of matching up to the shot that we saw in the previous part of the scene it does look like it could theoretically be in line with the space mountain building And, you know, now that we're talking about it, I wonder what is the fictional purpose of the Space Mountain building? Could it actually just be a roller coaster? Storage, shipping, playing right into the Space Mountain origin story. It's shipping. Or does it take off as a ship itself, like in those murals outside of the uh, Star Tours building? What's really interesting to me is that towards the end, the final scene, uh, when she's getting ready to get on the ship, they're saving a seat for her. She passes by one of these pylons that were clearly just set pieces added, designed to be, you know, some sort of Tomorrowland control interface. And what's interesting is that when we saw this at the LCAP and they had one of these pylons on display, but I have two of the pylons on display. All of them had that plus you, the plus ultra logo in the middle of them. Uh, and none of that made it into the actual film. They were all edited or, you know, or, or digitally, you know, changed to be the, the T like that's on the pin. You know, I found that very interesting because it kind of indicated, again, this sort of like hesitance to commit to that aspect of the story. Yeah. And we see that also in other sections of the movie where even 
alternate versions of the plus ultra logo were digitally modified uh, in one direction or the other of readability to the audience. So we can speak about those when we get to them later, but you know how this movie thinks about its own backstory and how much of that to pepper into the movie was clearly constantly in flux. And, you know, in this particular sequence, it could just be a consequence of the graphics on these pylons were always meant to be replaced digitally to be dynamic and, and motion-based graphics. Maybe it, it is possible that it was never intended to visibly show the Plus Ultra logo, but the fact that some of them were stripped out of the movie based on what we've seen of the actual physical assets does speak to that uncomfortability with how much of that should be laden into the movie itself. Both on the loading platform when Casey gets on the monorail and now here when she finally sees this troop of young astronauts, we can see another one of these stations and it does not have the Plus Ultra logo. It has like a a sort of jetpack T logo. Uh, The logo on the pin for the T was always kind of intended to mirror a kind of swooping jetpack design. And indeed, when they design the jetpacks, both for this 1984 sequence and later in the 2014 section, they purposefully designed them to make them look like a T. In what I assume is not an inspiration, they also look like Turbo Man's jetpack from Jingle All the Way. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Brad Bird is a big fan of the all-time holiday smash hit classic uh, from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now Between Casey looking at these scientists with all of these samples and looking at these similarly aged astronauts about to board essentially her dream ship, we see this couple, a man and a woman who are just leaning on the rail together, seemingly just enjoying each other's company at this spaceship landing platform, which I'm going to assume the concept of which was to paint this as more of a mundane occurrence, right? Yes, space travel is allowing for all these scientific discoveries, but in Tomorrowland, it's so often done that you're just seeing people casually lounge around like you would in either an airport or a bus station, more like. Well, there's a group. It's like the, you know, the team is gets together. They all meet up. They all walk onto the ship. There's no like big, they all have their duffel bags, very 80s. And speaking of 80s, you know, much like my observation uh, in the first episode about the World's Fair uh, 1964 version of Tomorrowland, I was initially shocked at how contemporary and advanced the design of a lot of the costumes and props are for these sequences that are supposed to be in 1984 and 1964. Um, But here, like you're saying, there are these little touches that bring out the 80s. And my favorite bit is, you know, you've got these... Uh, teenagers astronauts who are in these super sleek, super modern, very compact spacesuits, not the lumbering, bulky uh, sort of version of that that we would see in a movie like Alien. What we do have creeping through from the 80s are these great holographic, these bands of like holographic vinyl. And they just give off these nice little shiny rainbow patterns. And that definitely feels like a kind of 80s lunchbox aesthetic. So now we're at the very end. Her time is running out. She starts to she starts to get the water. I like to think that if she would not have spent that extra two minutes at the or that extra two seconds at the uh, 
at the train station, she would have actually gotten to go on the ship. But that's a good question is, was this the intended ending of the experience or was there a how would it have ended if she hadn't dawdled? Right. But then again, the monorail, if it's not responding to anything that she or the people around her are necessarily doing, then again, those kids were walking into that spaceship at a certain moment. And there really would have been no way to get that non-player character slash pre-recorded actor to get to that position before then. So I'm going to assume that Casey was actually right on the money and it was meant to spit you out and to tease you. And certainly we see that it inspires that kind of fervor from Casey later in the movie when she reflects on this grand vision that she was given and that was ripped away from her. And that starts to be one way that Casey and Frank relate to each other. And these two opposing character journeys uh, begin to intersect, but we'll get there in a future episode. Casey has gotten her vision of the future and we've all been lucky enough to share in it. It's ripples will echo out throughout the rest of the movie through character plot and theme. And we'll see how all of those land throughout future episodes as we continue to chart their journey. And if you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at the tomorrow time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear any memories you might have of the first time you saw Tomorrowland, or quite frankly, anything else you'd like to share with our listeners. We might just feature it in a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we discover why robots don't understand eBay. We'll be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there is always a place where dreamers dreamers can can stick stick together. together.